So last week, I got lost in a new series on Netflix that I completely enjoyed. Uh, it's a show that sort of tapped into my nostalgia. Oh, big surprise there on Netflix. Tapped into my nostalgia. Uh, it tapped into uh, what I love about filmmaking, what I love about the icons of my youth and cinema. Um, and it also tapped into what I love about really well-done documentary cinematography. Okay? Now, if you've been listening to the show for a while, you know that my roots are as a uh, director of photography, a cinematographer. I had spent time shooting interviews. Uh, I, I think I did over, I don't know what the number is, 35 documentaries uh, for Harvard and working with my uh, old buddy and uh, director Rudy Hippolyte. And back in those days, we were messing around with the early stages of digital oftentimes shooting on mini DV and shooting on all these different formats and finally making the advancements to, uh, you know, uh, still lenses and cinema lenses. And uh, the two of us always had a great working relationship because Rudy would let me sort of go off the rails and try to make stuff look as cinematic as I possibly could within the time constraints that we had. And the, uh, the task of trying to advance uh, the photography for uh, um, a documentary beyond just setting up a light quick and microphoning somebody and then just shooting is very difficult because of the time constraints, because of the location restraints, often because of budgetary restraints and crew size restraints. So um, it can be a challenging uh, career path if you're a cinematographer wanting to shoot um, uh, documentaries in a cinematic way, but it's also a very creative career path. And with the success of so many documentaries on the streaming services right now and the urgency that they seem to have to make these things look pretty epic, I mean, it's a cool career path. It's a really cool career path. It's uh, It borrows a lot of the same sort of techniques that you would use when shooting a narrative, like a, like a full-length feature, um, but comes with, like I said, all these logistical challenges and timing challenges. And most importantly, you're usually shooting with subjects that you don't want to come out of their comfort zone. Because the director, uh, she's often trying to get the most honest statement from these people. So the crew generally has to be invisible. It's fascinating. So when I watched the show, and the show that I watched was Arnold. So it's a three-part documentary series on the man, the myth, the legend, Mr. Arnold Schwarzenegger. By the way, I'm continuing to put this out in the universe. Arnold, uh, I would love to have you on the show. I know I just watched three hours of your life story. We'll talk about something else. Come on the show and let's talk about mini ponies and your favorite food. How about that? Um, but anyway, the doc series is fucking great. So if you're listening to this episode and you haven't seen it yet, maybe you should just go watch the trailer so that you can see the way it looks. Um, because I'm excited. I have Logan Schneider on the show today, and he is the cinematographer of that uh, series. He has been the cinematographer of a bunch of really great shows. Uh, he also shot Drunk History. If you guys remember Drunk History, 
Uh, if you haven't seen that, I highly suggest it. The idea behind that show is genius. They would uh, sit down with their friends drunk. They would get drunk with their friends who ended up being celebrities. Um, and they would ask them about, or they would have them tell uh, stories from history hammered. <laughs> and they would record these things and then shoot the reenactments using the audio that they recorded of the drunk person. Um, and they're fucking fantastic. They're hysterical. Um, and they're oftentimes shot, period. Uh, beautiful kind of cinematography. Uh, really cool, really cool, cool stuff. So uh, I'm excited to have Logan on the show. We're going to talk about all sorts of stuff. We're going to talk about his path into the industry. We're going to talk about what it's like working with celebrities as a cinematographer, how to process that, how to get your looks. He talks about dialing in your 70% to be the best it possibly can before your subjects sit down uh, in order to make your movies great because you could never get 100%. We're going to get deep, deep into all that stuff. We also share a love for the Scott boys. So we go a little deep into a hole on uh, Tony Scott, Ridley Scott, and the unsung heroes that are their camera operators uh, on that. And I should get some of them on the show. I really should. The teams that were responsible for shooting like Man on Fire, the teams that were responsible for shooting like Black Hawk Down, some of the most amazing stuff out there. Um, it's a great conversation. And uh, Logan and I, uh, both have the we have a little bond here which is great um, and I think you guys are going to enjoy it but before we get into it I just want to thank everybody for following me on Instagram at Mike Petchy on Instagram and following the podcast on Instagram that's in love of the process POD um, there this week you will see all sorts of posts for me uh, we announced the contest winner of the t-shirts I just as soon as I'm done on the microphone I'm shipping her her shirt out I'll be doing more contests um, if you're listening to this show today, um, if you want a t-shirt, I still have some in love with the process storyboard t-shirts left. Drop me a DM today when you listen to the show. Um, and we'll see if we can get you a shirt. Um, yeah, that's about it, man. Let's, let's get into the show. I'm excited. There's a lot to talk about. Uh, you know me and my love of cinematography um, and we're going to get in deep. Yes, we'll talk about gear. And yes, we'll talk about all sorts of stuff. So I know you're giddy for it. So strap yourselves in. And if you haven't been able to tell already, you're listening to the brand new episode of In Love With The Process. And get ready for a deep episode about the art of cinematography on the brand new episode of In Love With The Process. <laughs>
Logan, thanks for being on the show. How are you? Thanks for having me. Pleasure. I'm excited to talk to you. I just finished watching the whole Arnold doc last night, and I had a, I had a blast <laughs> with that I'm film. Glad to hear it. Yeah, man. We had a blast making it. I bet so I have so many questions for you. So excited about it, man. Um, and it, it looked gorgeous. Um, I assume you shot all like the, uh, sort of recreations and all that stuff as well as his interviews. Yeah. Yeah. Everything except for the, um, archival, um, and certain amount of stock footage. Roger. It was all us. Roger, Roger. Okay. Um, well, where are you calling? Where are you at? Are you in Los Angeles? So, um, I lived in LA for a long time. Now I live elsewhere and pretend I still live in LA. Nice. Very nice. Um, so I do a lot of like hashtag beach life, um, Instagram posts and, <laughs> um, you know, I can be in LA in a few hours. So very cool, man. Yeah. That, that works for me. <laughs> well, I'm over here in Glendale. So, uh, oh, there you go. yeah, it's, it's actually really rainy and shitty today, which is so strange. Cause I feel like I'm back at home in Boston for most of this year. It's been going around. Yeah. Um, I'm actually having a nice sunny day here in Montana. Oh, not, oh, um, not beautiful land. But, beautiful land up there. Yeah. I went to college up here and, and uh, it seemed like a nice place to raise the kids. Nice. Man. You don't really see your kids when you're working as a DP anyway. So we're like, let's live somewhere awesome so we can hang out. Yeah. That's a big, that's a big deal, man. Trying to manage your family life while being pulled off for uh you know at least a month <laughs> to go do stuff yeah well i mean even when i would like i remember we realized when i was doing drunk history like my first tv show was um <laughs> you know i would leave before they were up and i'd be back after they were asleep and like we're we're in the same city but i don't see them at all yeah so let's uh we got to figure out the best way to manage this and i, I feel like that you know, I listen to a lot of these podcasts, uh, various cinematography and filmmaking podcasts. And yep. that's the thing that no one talks about. They talk about yes, the stuff that's relatively easier. Yes. I mean, dude, that's why you're here. <laughs> this show is all about talking about the stuff that no one wants to talk about in this business. And I mean, I don't know if, you, um, I don't know if you've listened to any of the episodes or anything, but I listened to a couple uh, when uh, I had I wasn't familiar yet, but I listened to the the gentleman, the producer from um, Scott Free. Yep, yep. Who is super interesting, and uh, I'm also a big Tony and Ridley Scott fan. And then um, yeah, me too, dude. <laughs> uh, Eric Messerschmidt, who I know a bit, and he's always super enlightening and interesting. So um, yeah. I was like, this is this is a solid solid conversations and, and in depth and not just, uh, very, you know, marketing. Well, for those of you at home that feel like I was fishing for a compliment, I was, <laughs> That's what that was. <laughs> yeah. I also watched your short, oh. which I enjoyed as well. Oh, which one did you watch? Did you watch 12 cam or uh, the, the, yeah. 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 Awesome. man. thank you. That was fun. Thank you. Um, I, I, I realized it reminded me of working on like a low budget music video 15 years ago as an AC where you 
like the power is about to go out. Someone's yelling to shut it down and there's a monster coming from somewhere and you're not quite sure when it's going to kill everybody. Yeah. And the monster usually is the record label. <laughs> yeah. Banging yeah. on the door. Or the, or the hip hop entourage, you know, something. <laughs> yeah, man. There was a lot of that but drama. It was, it was really great mood it. and tone and I enjoyed it. Thank you, man. I appreciate you watching it. Thank you so much. Um, well, let's talk about you, man. Let's talk about your career. That's why you're here today. Um, how did you, so were you always, uh, do you always have your sights set on cinematography? Were you a photographer initially? Did you want to be a director initially? Like well, how'd you get into this business? One of the nice things is, uh, I arrived in film school after a few years of, I had made like snowboard videos, with my friends on like high eight, mm -hmm. you know, in the late nineties and that kind of, I was having fun and editing them. And then, oh, I could use this for school projects and it expanded and on and on. So then I decided I want to go to film school somewhere where I can still be in the snow, mm -hmm. which is a limited list, which brought me to Montana State, which has actually had a film school since the 60s. Oh, wow. Um, and some really, there's not a ton of people that come out of it, but the ones that come out do quite well um, in the industry. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, um, so I get to film school and it was nice because I just knew that I was going to be some great director, which is really a reassuring thing to know. <laughs> um, and then after about six months, I'm like, everything that I really want to be doing on all these shoots is, is not actually directing. It's just shooting. Yeah. And then I took the ego kill and um, have been enjoying it ever since. Well, um, I mean, you call but it I, relatively, I knew really early and have loved it ever since you call it an ego kill. So when I got started in, in this business, I, you know, went to school for directing and then went to a place where I really wasn't hanging out with a lot of cinema. This was back when it was still mostly 35 millimeter. And I wasn't hanging out with a lot of old crusty cinematographers that were ready to hang out with a young kid and shoot for a weekend. So I, Mm -hmm. fell really deep into doing cinematography and was doing it for quite some time. Um, and it is the coolest job on set. I mean, I, I even think it's cooler than being a director. And I think directors get a lot of credit for stuff mm -hmm. that cinematographers do. Um, I think that, you know, as a cinematographer, you're completely connected and attached to the visual medium and, and telling a story with images and, and really sort of the gatekeeper of tone visually. Um, it's a fun, it's a great job, dude. I think it's one of the coolest. I, jobs. I, I love my job and occasionally I will do director DP work on commercials mm -hmm. if the project fits. And so I get to build some empathy there, understand their process more. Um, and you could see like if directing is your thing it's the best job in the world. Yeah. Um, as it is with many film jobs and uh, you know, the, the certain medium within filmmaking really allow director to, to direct, to, to, to hone the vision and, and, and give um, a really solid through line to the process mm -hmm. and the storytelling. The more I've worked in different parts of the industry, I realized that's not a universal thing, but it's, um, uh, I don't know. I, I, I think they're both fantastic jobs. I, to me, cinematography is the core of what I like about filmmaking of, of, um, 
camera movement and blocking and lighting and mm-hmm. that moment when it gets captured, mm-hmm. all the magical pieces of 200 people moving. And then, you know, it, it goes into the black box of editing and post and color for <laughs> a certain amount of time. Um, but then I like, I like that I walk away and go to the next job instead of, you know, sip, sift through the, <laughs> the wreckage and <laughs> try to put it together. That's very true. Um, That's very true. You know, yeah. and, and like I let, I used to, when I first moved to LA, I was working on this documentary waiting for Superman. Mm-hmm. Uh, the director of Arnold was a producer on that. Oh, cool. Um, and also directed second unit. And, um, I didn't really know that many people and, uh, I was in Venice and they were in Santa Monica. So I would go up and have lunch and like talk with the editors, watch the string outs, try to understand where they were finding the story, which made me better shooting. And, Mm -hmm. and also really, you know, gave me an appreciation of that end and what's involved. But, Mm -hmm. you know, I still like having the call. All right. See you on Thursday. And at the end of the job, that's a wrap. Hi guys. <laughs> and for those listening, once again, that theme shows up. I've talked about it on multiple episodes. If you are a cinematographer, anybody that works on set and you have an opportunity to get in the edit room, you will have a greater understanding of how everything works and where it all funnels to. Like, uh, I think that's incredibly important to do, especially if you're a shooter, if you have an understanding of how things get cut together, it's very important. It, it's, it carries through into everything I do now. And, um, and maybe you only pick up one or two little notes on each project mm-hmm. in terms of how you construct a scene. Um, but that's enough to, I remember the same editor of Arnold was d- doing another uh, doc maybe seven or eight years ago where with Leslie, where he kind of said, you know, can we get some more reaction shots and, and, mm-hmm. and just, focus on some of the listening so that I have some, some room to play. Mm-hmm. And, and I thought I was doing that, but then I, I gave it a little more time, made sure I found it. And also I would get reactions on different eyelines so that just like you would in a, a narrative project so that the editor could take an eye flick and run it to another over yep. of this conversation. And, and that's kind of been ingrained in how I shoot both docs and narrative ever since and little comments, you know, super helpful. Yeah, man. And when I was shooting snowboarding and, uh, and like soccer films in high school or, or whatever it was learning, having the time with editing and like, Oh, all these little insert texture shots get used every time. Like you need to be looking for those through your whole career. And if I wasn't in the editing room, I don't know if I would have latched on to that sort of kind of detail work that that has really helped me through the years. Well, an interesting thing, like looking through your work, an interesting thing that we don't often talk about on the show is, you know, working with, you know, talent like larger celebrities as as a cinematographer, because with Drunk History, you had a bunch of uh, celebrities in front of your lens. Like, it was amazing. That show was so much fun. It must and everyone, have been. Just a lot of great people uh, all wanting to do something cool. Yeah. Um, uh, it's kind of, and the amount of freedom was just unbelievable because there, there were um, two 
creators who were the directors who were the EPs. So if they were happy and if the line producer and I were happy and we got along really well, um, then we could kind of do whatever we wanted. (laughs) But in terms of the celebrity part of it, um, that was super helpful in learning how to like get ready before they walk in, um, not be tweaking, not messing around. Yes. um, And just, you know, uh, trusting where you're at and, and accepting imperfection so that the director and the actors can do their thing. Yeah. The whole tweaking thing is really important. There's that, I forget his name, but there's that famous clip that was on the internet for a while where uh, Christian Bale was being, I don't forget his name, but I'm not going to get into it. Yeah. 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 yeah, That whole bit. um, And, but I know what you mean. Yeah. And you know, Bale was kind of being a a dick about it, but um, you know, he was also tweaking around like there's something interesting about uh, remembering that as a shooter, you're not supposed to be distracting to the talent. And then I think a lot of cinematographers get lost in the thought that they're the most important person when it comes to doing certain things. And it's like, dude, you have the set until talent really shows up. And then, you know, you don't have the set. Anymore, yeah. You know, I, I, I remember at some ASC function many years ago talking with John seal. Mm-hmm. Um, and had this, interesting conversation where he was saying my job is to make it look good enough so that the, as fast as I can. So the director and the actors have the most possible time. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, easy to say to Oscar DP, but at the same time, (laughs) yeah, he's absolutely right. He's super fast. He, he learned how to get, um, a friend of mine that worked for Darius Wolski at one point yeah. said that he would talk about, he tried to get his 70% to be as good as it could be. Like 70% should be, is what you can mostly get to. You'll yeah. never have the time to do hundred percent. So if your 70 is really good, then your movie's going to look good. Yeah. And um, that was reiterated by seal in a way that was like, okay, I got to, again, the ego kill of like, this can't be all about me. I need to learn to work around this um, and create that space, especially with like top end talent where um, they don't want you tweaking around their head. They, they've earned the right for you to be ready. Yeah. And, And that deserves respect at the same time. You also need to be aware of, of, you know what? They walked in. Something big is wrong. I need five minutes. I'm sorry. Own it. Move forward. Yep. Because um, if there's some crazy nose shadow that's just going to make them look horrible, yep. They may not like it, but you need to protect them because they're going to remember that when they see the footage. And like I've talked to a lot of talent that understands this. Like I was recently working with uh, an actress who's on a big show, and I was lighting. Um, for photo shoot with her, and she's like, "Please make me look good." <laughs> like there's there, there's a there's yeah. a sense of understanding that the longer that actors are in the business, the more they realize that they, you know, should be bringing beers and hanging out with the lighting team because they make them look really fantastic. You know? Yeah, I I it's that line of you. They deserve for you to be ready. At the same time. The, the real pros, the real top end, if you have a good reason, they'll wait. Yeah. You know, they're, 
they know that you're trying to make them look good. It's often the mid-level, some sort of insecurity going on person yeah. that that is kind of looking to lash out based on their insecurity. Yeah. And that's the ones that tend to be the most dangerous for kind of crew and politics. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Which is, you know, 60 to 70% of the job. So, yeah, it's the politics of reading the room and, and understanding like what's happening and it's tough, man. I, I, I get it. And that's why I, I wanted to ask you about that stuff. Was there anybody that you worked with uh, on any of the shows that you've done or that show in particular that you absolutely loved and you had a, a like a synergy with as far as the talent was concerned? Man, it's kind of a <laughs> big embarrassment question. of riches on that one. I, what, what I will say about that was, you know, the directors were um, Derek, who was in the show, was one of them. Yep. Um, and then the other one was Jeremy Connor and, um, they both were completely different in their approach, Hmm. um, where Derek would want to figure out like, this is the shot exactly uh, on the scout. We're going to see this edge to this edge. This is how we're going to move and leaving a little room for, you know, blocking adjustments and things. Um, Mm -hmm. but the idea was we could put everything around that and commit to, to these looks and style and might light like a bigger movie where you can bring the lights to the edges and really shape mm-hmm. with finesse. Jeremy didn't want to force anything until the actors had uh, rehearsed. So that was all about area lighting and giving space and finding ways to say yes in complex situations, which was much harder on our department than it was for me because they had to suddenly dress 360. Whereas for me, it was the lights get bigger, they go outside yeah. and I find a way to wrap them around once I see the blocking. Which is a, um, which is a, a formula for a lot of comedy stuff because, you know, I think especially with a show like that, they must've been looking for a lot of improv improvisational and yeah. 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 Cause that's where the funny is yeah. with a lot of those, with, with a lot of the talent that was on that show. Yeah. I, at the same time, it was like, eight to 13 pages a day. <laughs> so <laughs> there was a certain amount of, of room to play at the same time. We had to like, the more we had room to adjust the, the less time we had to actually go, go, go. So that that's where it became, I had to learn to not say no by putting the lights outside and just creating trust with the line producer that I'm not like, just playing with toys. Um, it's Jeremy wants to be able to go wherever for the scene. That means 318 chaos outside. Mm-hmm. I know that wasn't planned for originally, but um, I can't, I don't want to be the one to say no. Cause that's not my job. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, uh, and he, again, building that trust, he'd learned that I wasn't, um, I wasn't, just spend, trying to just spend just the money. Play. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and I would also, if I could find a way to save half an hour and wrap early to save some money or to combine things, I would do that every time I could. Yeah. 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 Um, and you know, that's, I, I feel like the, there's an antagonism between 
the crew in production and DPs in production sometimes that uh, is very unfortunate because it is it should be a hand in glove situation because um, you're both trying to do the same thing. Yeah, right. Because you're you, it's a it's a game of time and money, especially for for line producers yeah. and the production team. Yeah, 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 and yeah. and and they they just see the larger picture when it comes to the budget. So like if you you're right too because we really haven't talked about that on the show. Like it, the the conflict that usually happens there, I, I feel like the conflicts that I've seen there happen there with, with younger, you know, filmmakers. And there's this whole like, this is my chance to shine. I'm supposed to do this and I should have this and I should have that. And it's, you know, just yeah. try, trying to get the younger people to get that bird's eye view of, of the entire production sometimes can be hard, you know? And I wouldn't say that I'm never at fault of like getting caught in gear or like a a rig idea and letting that absorb me a little too much. But Mm -hmm. I think after, you know, I spent 10 ish years as a focus puller and I saw every piece of gear before I shot with it. So it was, there was less of that, um, kind of fetishization of, Oh, look, it's a techno crane. (laughs) Look, 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 I got a techno crane for my behind the scenes picture. It's more (laughs) like, Oh, we're shooting over water. If we do a techno crane, I can save you an hour and the moves will be cooler. Yeah. 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 You know, and and once you like, I found it super helpful to like talk with production and, and kind of figure out what the equation is of time to money. Yeah. Because they've got a number for what half an hour is or an hour. And that, they, they're kind of coy with it, but um, they usually let you know in some sort of frustration. <laughs> and then you have the number. But then, um, yeah, you know, you'd be like, hey, this BB light will save us an hour and a half. And it's going to cost 4000 plus rate for the 10 hours. And it's like, oh, okay. Well, that's an easy equation for them. Um, yeah. You know, which is a smart way to talk to, to talk them into getting things that you need, because like that's yeah. it's an interesting it's an interesting thing because I've worked with a lot of line producers that are like don't get involved, and especially as a director, line producers will say to me like don't even think about all this. And I go no no no, I should be thinking about how much this costs and how long these things take because I'm the guy that's going to be creating the coverage for this sequence. So how about we have these conversations? So I can make it easier for the day and still get what we need. Or if I know that I'm going to push for this one shot that we're determined on in the moment and I'm going to lose three other things later on, I should know that. So that way I can make the yeah. decisions now instead of in the edit room when my bin only has two clips in it. You know what I mean? Well, you have a, you have a background as, of shooting. So you, yes, some directors that would overwhelm or be distracting and some directors have that ad button where they can like oh well i i you know if i commit this much time if i combine these two things add a camera to this and all of a sudden Mm -hmm. i get all these shots Mm -hmm. and and save money by not doing this that's that's great when it works um not everyone can uh but what i what i do suggest in those situations is give me the best case scenario of what you'd like and let's work back from there. Don't, don't start getting logistical until you feel like you really know what this could be. Right. And then, 
there's there's almost always a way to get close or or adjust or work with the sun or whatever it is that that gives you more efficiency that you can you can get closer to what you really want without giving it up um, for practical concerns. Yeah, I, uh, there's some version that's possible. It's good advice, and I like I I totally understand that. I mean, you were saying earlier that you are a fan of uh, Ridley and Tony, and I've been fortunate mm-hmm. enough to be in the space with uh, those guys or with uh, Ridley's company and all them. Um, and mm-hmm. the reason why I love him so much is because he is such an economical filmmaker. It, it, he doesn't he doesn't uh, hold back as far as his vision's concerned, but he also has a greater understanding of how uh, to shoot sequences fast and quickly and efficiently and still beautifully. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when you look at that guy's career, I mean, he's in his 80s now. I mean, he's into a multiple films a year and running multiple companies and he's just banging it out. Oh, so. he's a he's a legend. They, they're both absolute legends. And on the cinematography side, I've suggested to some camera manufacturers who are asking me about who would be a good panel. I'm like, get those five camera guys that never get credit. Yes. Get, get <laughs> Dan Mendel, Walski, Paul Cameron, uh, Jacques Dufresne is doing it now. Um, all these Oliver Woods sadly passed, but all these guys that like, they never get awards. Yeah. They never get their due, but five cameras looks amazing. And how do you even do that? Ben Richardson is doing it with Yellowstone and all those Taylor Sheridan stows now. It's five cameras all the time. So it's, it's crazy. How do you like, light for how, how do you many people that? can do that and make it look great? Look at Deja Vu and that little interview scene. And there's a shaft of light coming through the oh. window down onto the Dude. table. There's, there's nag fill everywhere, but all five cameras look great. Yeah. yeah. It's not supposed to work. (laughs) (laughs) It's, you know, it's, and it's a, such an art form. Dude. And for those of you listening who we're nerding out real hard, because we've done this before, whenever traditionally, traditionally in cinema, whenever you shoot with one camera, you have a camera that's pointed in a direction and there's a line of sight for that lens. And then behind the camera, next to the camera, there are lights, there's crew, there's C stands, there's flags, there's all sorts of stuff that you can't see. And that's what is being used with negative fill to shape the contrast of that one image. And so when you have these these legends like Ridley or even like David Fincher, these guys that can do multiple camera shots and in the same fucking room somehow figure out that formula of needing that gear, putting that gear and having that negative fill and everything that you need. And there's multiple viewing angles and they're shooting more than 180 of the room. It's just like, it's, it's a crazy puzzle. Uh, and when you see it, it's legendary. Like I've been on a few sets where I've seen it. I'm like, oh wow, man! Mm-hmm. And they they set that stuff up fast and efficiently. That's that's high end, man. High end, high end work. I I uh, and it's something that almost no one gets to see. I I was very really lucky early on to run into a couple of the Tony Scott camera guys, yeah. um, their assistants and. Over the years, as I became an assistant, got in the union, was working more, I became friends with a number of them. And I, I just remember looking up to those guys like, man, they they want the harder shot. Mm-hmm. They they will run to it. Their whole thing on like unstoppable, six cameras, no waiting. Like <laughs> it was all about get more, get it better, make it cooler and not, you know, 
am I comfortable? Do I have a ferny pad for my knees? <laughs> yeah, you know, right, right. is it, this cappuccino is cold. That's a foamy <laughs> latte. Get this out of here type right, of thing. Right, right, right. Um, yeah. And, you know, I, I, I was always just wanting to be close to as good as they were. Um, so um, it's always been the benchmark to me. Me too, man. Those are the sets I want to run. Those are the sets that I want to direct. I mean, if you, when you saw 12 cam, you know what I try to, that, that was ridiculously yeah. uh, intense for the amount of time that we had. How many days shoot was that? Uh, but, 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 but we were on the, that location, which was in that warehouse for one, two, three days. Plus we did mm-hmm. a day in a studio. So that was four days. And then all of the inserts and the micro stuff, I did two days with mm-hmm. a, a microbiologist under magnified glasses and microscopes and stuff. So All that cool uh, sound through the liquid and... That was really cool. Thanks, man. Yeah, it was all it was all physical. None of that was CG. So everything that you saw on screen was either a chemical experiment that we did, or it was all done in camera. Um, because being a shooter, I knew that I would find a lot of really great happy mistakes through the lens. That you know, shitty CG looks like shitty CG. There's no such thing as a happy totally. mistake in, in CG. So. That's and right. even great CG usually just looks like great, great CG. Yes. It's, it's, it's so rare that you, you don't notice it. And most of the time, I think it's when it's blended with something real that it, it really becomes seamless. I, I, dude, I love doing that. So I, I love to, I think CG should just be an extension tool. I really do. Cause if you're doing everything practically there, you as the cinematographer are inspired by what you see and you get to light it and you get to do really great mm-hmm. movements on it. The talent physically has the ability to get lost in whatever they're physically doing. Um, and then not to mention the fact that the crew that's huddled around the monitor, you know, especially for the first shot of the whole shoot, they sit there and go, ah, I got it. This is what the whole fucking thing is. And then they're building on that as opposed to a green screen where you're like, what is, what is happening here? You know, it's one of the coolest part of the led wall situation where, you know, if you're on the right project for it is, you know, the actor can see the space they're in. The, the person framing the camera can find a frame that is balanced against the mountain in the background, not just, a tennis ball, you know, <laughs> yeah, right, um, right. for the DP, you can, t- it takes a lot of work, but you can match the gamma between the forward lighting and the back wall. Um, yeah. And integrate to so much of the time. What happens with CG is at some point in the process, some element, the gamma gets messed up and right. all of a sudden, like it's so much, so many times you'll see the gritty movie and then a CG shot and you can see all the shadows <laughs> They're all open, like you're in a video game. You're like, that's, it's just the worst giveaway. Yeah. Um, Yeah. I'll kind of take a segue into Doc World. This really taught me is when I shoot narrative. Yep. To to show the fight of exposure. Like, if you're on a set and it was a practical location, you'd be fighting, like, the sun's coming through the window. Mm-hmm. You're barely holding the exposure on the on the sunlight. You're just holding the shadow detail where you want it, and you're you're shaping within that. But but you you've got to throw a lot away 
in a controlled environment for it to look like you're somewhere real. Mm-hmm. And CG's like the worst example of that, where you're you have everything you ever want, but that's not really what the story needs. It needs to feel like it's just another shot in the movie. Mm-hmm. 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 Um, I, I, when people start talking about range, I'm just like Caravaggio did not paint like he did because he didn't have dynamic range. Like <laughs> he painted cause that's how you got the emotion. Exactly. Same with Rembrandt and, and all these greats is there's a place for that, but that's a different mood and a different feel. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, we have all these rules that uh, I feel like a lot of the stuff that is, that is, you know, forced on us, it comes from the manufacturers, really. I think, I think that in our industry right now, the, it's really a, a consumer industry and it's a manufacturer industry right now. And um, it's, mm-hmm. I think a lot of the younger folks that are coming into it, I talked to a lot of younger cinematographers and he's like, this one guy specifically, he's like, what, what do you think I should do? Should I go work on set? Should I do this? And I said, I don't know, pick up some fucking art books and pick up some painterly books and start to decipher a script and break down a script and figure out how you yeah. would use those techniques to emotionally uh, tell a story. Because as a director, I, I'd find you a hell of a lot more useful than a guy who knows how to turn on the latest camera and set mm-hmm. the settings in it, man. You know, Or do both. Yeah, yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. Because you're a lot more effective if you have that broader knowledge, but also if you're making a living and being part of it, so you're not stressed all the time about a paycheck. Yep. That that helps. Um, if you're becoming a professional, which isn't for for me, that was really important, and that took a while. Camera assisting was super helpful for that of like learning what it meant to really be a professional before I was in this situation where I'm managing 20 people and I'm in a hyper (laughs) sketchy political environment, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know, like that's not, uh, with high page count, you know, that's not (laughs) something you want to drop into before you're ready. Um, both as a DP, but as a human. Um, and then, you know, so many editors become directors and, and, come from other paths, but, but being on set and being part of filmmaking, um, it keeps the dream alive in ways it's not so far off because you're there. Mm -hmm. And then when the time comes, you can, you can do your thing. Um, you know, I, I, one of those Tony Scott guys, um, Mike Jones, he, he actually was an assistant to Tony, uh, before he got into camera. And then he was a second AC for a long time on Unstoppable and others. But now he's the director uh, and DP who's fantastic, does a lot of commercial work and um, just a fantastic person. Mm. But think of what he's seen. Yeah. Like think yeah. of the stories and the, then the, the broad background he can bring to everything. Yeah. Man, I miss Tony Scott, man. I've like we've talked about him on the show. Yeah. I had Carnahan on the show and he was talking about working with Tony mm-hmm. and Tony was it just seems like he was such a really great mentor and a really inspiring guy and yeah. a very emotional guy. It's such a, a a sad thing that we lost him. Um and I, I wish he was such a cool balance to Ridley too. Yeah. Cuz yeah. I think of like my my son is 9 years old and has made me a baseball fan. Um which is really fun uh, through the eyes of a kid. <laughs> but now I think of those in these baseball terms of 
Um, Ridley is like a home run hitter. Yep. Like he steps up, he takes big swings. Sometimes he has, you know, he's got so many amazing movies, but he's got some that just yeah, miss. Yeah, yeah. And that's okay. Yep. But I still watch Black Hawk Down three times a year because it's Dude, the it's best amazing. Movie, you know, it, like every Blade Runner, Alien, on and on and on. Uh, dude, um, I will even watch his. To me, was like Ichiro Suzuki, who is just hits. Like yeah. he hits occasional home runs, Man on Fire, True Romance, Top Gun. Yep. But a lot, like every at bat, there's something that something happening, something interesting. Yeah. And like unique and fun. Yeah, yeah. I mean, with both of them, I'll, I'll watch their misses just to absorb technique and absorb oh, yeah. tone like everything that they did was fun and experimental and I, I felt like if if really went big i felt like tony was going hyper focused like he was big into the hand crank stuff and all of that mm-hmm. crazy editing and that montage editing that he was doing straight through man on fire all the way down through unstoppable right i think he was doing like that. domino I really liked Domino. I think it was, yeah, it, it pushed it in a lot of ways, but I, I really liked that movie. I just think the world wasn't quite ready for it. Yeah. The insanity. Um, <laughs> uh, but sometimes those like mistakes that happen or, or when the film's not quite as good, those were your only real chance to see how they were doing anything. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Cause when you see like Black Hawk Down, it's so good and it's so well done. Like, mm-hmm. How, how, where do you even start doing something like that? I don't do And then you might take another film that didn't quite come together and you're like, oh, this didn't work. This didn't work. That probably means he was trying this. And you can start to like reverse engineer some of the thought process. Right. Yes. That's bad. Movies right. teach you more often than, than the good ones. Than great movies. Yeah. Yeah. But it's still, I get the inspiration from great movies. Oh, all the way around. I mean, I, I, when we start to get nerdy, this is why I fell in this hole with you. I, when we start to get nerdy about this stuff, you just, it reminds me of how much I, I fucking love uh, visualists, right? These visual storytellers. And you get, there's a lot of them now. I mean, you got like Denis who does really amazing stuff. And, mm-hmm. you know, obviously Christopher Nolan's pushing the envelope with a lot of the stuff that he's doing. Um, but I, there was a period of time, I, th- I feel like, I, I guess it was during the auteur period where you just felt like there was a lot more visualists pushing the envelope. And maybe that's a, a dumb statement right now and a loaded statement, but I don't know. I miss Tony. <laughs> I um, think that's what yeah. it is. Well, they had that commercial background also yeah. where they were right on the edge. You know, they would go on those six week Marlboro jobs and like push <laughs> everything, hand crank, go all over. Or, um, you know, they all that history of, of kind of being on the edge of what's possible and then bringing it to features is, is pretty great. And, um, and the, the craft of the DPs that were in that world. And yeah, um, just amazing. It's really, uh, uh, yeah, but a significant part of, of why it looks the way it does. Um, I think, I think now so much looks the same yes. because everyone's using the same tools, but they're also, they're not, they're not, 
I mean, I can tell you this because I, I know it's true is a lot of people just don't do their homework on mm-hmm. trying to go further with it. Mm-hmm. Like I, I'm one of the owners of a camera rental house and, um, and so I have this perspective of a DP, but also of seeing how other DPs act. Um, I have some friends that are really good on doing their homework and some that, Oh, give me the lenses that shot this thing. You know, they, they don't want to test. They don't want to figure out their, their LUTs and their pipeline and their color. And that's, I think why so much is just, you're shooting on the same lenses, same cameras, same lights, same basic approach. And it just, it gets mundane. All right, time to do the ad reads for today's episode. Time to talk about the gear and the sponsors. And before you leave, you never know what I'm going to say during the ad reads. So you might miss something. First up, our friends over at Puget Systems. If you're in the marketplace for a computer, maybe you're going to do some editing. Maybe you're going to do some coloring. There's a lot of colorists that listen to this show. Uh, My system runs DaVinci Resolve really fucking well. The specs of my system run it really well. I was just uh, color grading uh, 6K, and then I was color grading massive 4K projects. I was doing uh, compositing within Resolve. I was doing uh, the tracking in that program is unreal. Unreal. It's fucking crazy. The fact that I can track someone's face and sees it in three-dimensional space and it rarely goes wrong. Even when someone moves a hand in front of their face and I'm trying to track it, it still continues. It's amazing. I do all that stuff real time with my Puget system. Go to PugetSystems.com. Choose a system or start with a system based upon the software you think you're going to use. But here's a, here's a little tip. Not all hardware configurations will work for every piece of software out there. The thing that's great about Puget Systems is that they benchmark test everything. So they will tell you whether or not you should get that new graphics card. If it's going to do anything with that version of After Effects that you're still using. You know what I mean? Uh, Maybe you're someone that wants to build their own PC. Puget System posts all their stuff on their website. So it's a great resource if you're trying to put this stuff together. Um, And if you're someone that is running a post-production company, if you're somebody that needs multiple systems that all work together perfectly and you want real deal customer support, real deal customer support, there's a reason why the dudes over at Carter use all Puget System stuff because they love the support that they get from the guys over at Puget. Go to PugetSystems.com and check out what it is that I'm talking about. Also supporting the show are the guys over at Fujifilm. Fujifilm, uh, they create amazing cameras. We shoot with the GFX100S. We shoot with the HX2S. I think I got that right. (laughs) And uh, we use them for photos. We use them for video. I love their video cameras. They're a great second shooter. You can actually shoot a full feature with them if you want. Um, I love the color profiles. And if you hook yourself up with a Photo Deox lens adapter... You can mount cinema lenses on these cameras. You can mount uh, cinema lenses on these full-frame photo cameras. You can shoot photos through the lenses that are used to shoot movies. Uh, it's really fucking rad, man. Their color profiles are amazing. Uh, and while you're on the show, if you're a newcomer, you should go back and listen to my Fujifilm Creator Series. 
I have a whole series of Fujifilm creators. These are filmmakers and photographers that Fujifilm has sponsored, has actually helped them make their projects. And what does that say about Fuji as a company? So many of these companies will only give out money if you're doing unboxing experiences, right? Fujifilm is one of them that goes, hey, we know it's all about creating stories. So we want to help you finance your stories. How can you, how can you not like this company? Fujifilm, place to go for cameras. They're awesome. And if you are going to mount some uh, cinema lenses and they're too expensive to own, right? There's a lot of really cool new ones out in the market. Those new Atlas Mercuries that everybody's going to have right now. I like the Atlas Orion series, which are really great. Those are anamorphics. Um, make friends with your local rental house. Like, where are you at? Because so many of you are in different parts of the world that are listening to the show. There's a lot of you out here in Los Angeles. So if you're out here in LA, uh, you should form a relationship with Boca Rentals. Boca Rentals is the place to go for all the, the lenses that uh, are used to shoot all these great shows that you watch. I guarantee you can find the lenses that were used for Logan at Boca. Um, you can also find the Airy Mini LF that they used for uh, Arnold at Boca. So go check out Boca, uh, BocaRentals.com or you can check them out on Instagram and tell them that I sent you and just hang out with them, man. During the strike is the best time to play with gear and do gear tests. And I've been to Boca and I've done tests there. And depending upon the time of day, that place is fucking packed. There's a lot of fucking young guys and girls in there trying to figure out cameras and do tests. They love us. And the few, dude, the, the times that I've been in, they, they bought me lunch while I'm in there doing tests. They're such a great, great, great company. Can't say enough good things about them. So definitely check them out. Uh, that's it. Let's get back to the interview. If you work with me, it's about playing, right? And so, like, mm -hmm. when I came up through the business, I so I grew up in Boston. I was in LA. I was in New York. And so we were kind of creating it from scratch because there really, I mean, there is an industry now there because of the tax incentive, but it took years for mm -hmm. that to happen. So we mm -hmm. were kind of creating everything from scratch. And at the time, I was reading books like Rebel Without a Crew, Robert Rodriguez's book. Mm -hmm. I was obsessed. Classic. Yeah, dude. I was obsessed with, um, you know, the Scots. And like I was hunting. And I, I remember, and I say it on the show all the time, but I love this quote where like the gaffer went up to Ridley and Blade Runner. And Ridley's like, just get some plates of water and skip the light off the water and have it on the walls. And he's like, why? It looks like there's a pool in here. And he's like, it doesn't make any sense. And Ridley's like, just fucking do it because I said to. <laughs> and you're like, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, it's, yeah. it's opening it up to play. And so with with this medium, I guess this is why I got uh, why I made that statement about manufacturers. Like, you pick up a new camera, right? 
And you can open up the instruction manual and that manual will tell you how to set your aperture. It'll tell you how to set the correct frame rate and your speeds. Um, but it won't tell you how to fuck it all up. And I think some of the best filmmakers out there, Sam Raimi, like all these guys just took the tools and, and wrestled them into doing whatever they wanted with them. And mm -hmm. I, you just don't see that freedom when you watch a lot of this stuff right now. You know, I think, I think a lot of the freedom comes with like taking with testing. Mm -hmm. um, so, and I look to some of my favorite DPs where um, like Storaro didn't feel like he had a handle on color. He took a year off when he had a new baby and no money and just sat in the timing suite at Technicolor Rome and watched everything and learned everything That's so cool. that he could completely control the process. Um, there was that beautiful book um, about Darius Kanji that came out like two years ago. And he talks about a similar process in Paris in the late 80s yeah. where he, he really learned the lab process. Deacons on 1984 had learned the lab process enough to take out the bleach, and he was the first one to do that. And, and so many Gordon Willis find your printer lights, shoot you the printer lights. And these people going back to Toland with his test strips and, and the whole range, the ones that really learn the process and understand what's happening start to finish can build their looks start to finish. Mm -hmm. And, and that texture is so different than if you just slap on a, uh, some color at the end. Yeah. Or you um, it's, it should be dealing with a, a DIT. This is what we did on Arnold. Like I worked with a DIT who I've known forever. He helped me build looks for all these different parts of his life, the interview for the, for the Verite and in a way that we could view exposed to those LUTs, light to those LUTs, and then um, adjust it later in color. But it wasn't something that was just added later. It was, it was baked into our approach. So when you were designing those LUTs with your colorist, what do you do? Shoot some camera tests with like the general sort of lighting setup that you would want and then give them to them and then they build the LUT based upon those shots or do they just, like how do they build those LUTs? Um, it was a mixture. So um, uh, we, I asked for a, a lighting test with Arnold, a lighting and lens test. Um, mm -hmm. And he was nice enough to do it at his house where we ended up doing the main interview. Um, and so Leslie, the director and I had talked about, um, she wanted him to be like, he's, he's Arnold, he's big, but he's also like a human and we need to connect with him. Mm -hmm. So we need to find the balance between like Terminator and mundane. It's, <laughs> it's gotta be, it's gotta be this thing that can, we can have empathy with and connect with as he's going through his life. Um, we, we tested several different lighting approaches. We tested, um, anamorphic versus spherical, uh, large format, th super 35, different, different options. Um, mm -hmm. and there, there were some really concrete things we came away with that ended up being part of the first shoot day. And then on from there, um, and the DIT Eli Berg was there for both. He was, um, Eli, I worked with when he was a second AC, like we go way back, but he's since then he's, uh, he's a DIT for Mihai Malahar and most recently did like 
Jojo Rabbit and the, mm-hmm. the new Coppola movie. And he's, he's just a fantastic human and artist. And, um, I'm thankful that he puts up with me. <laughs> um, but so he, he's helping me define color and we can see what we can do grading, but while also building the lighting at the same time so yeah. that we're, yeah. we're connecting everything. It's, it's more like, um, what's a, what's a good example of like, there's so many balls in the air and they kind of merge at the same time. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's, it's more like cooking than like yes. baking, you know? Yes. Cause you have the, um, you have the freedom. I, the same reason I like to shoot with lots on preview as well, because it's like, what, mm-hmm. how did the adjustment of the lighting change that lot? That's fascinating. It, yeah. It gives you like a, a North, on your compass where you're like, okay, so that's the direction that I'm headed in. Let me, what if mm-hmm. we introduce color? What does the color do to this lot? Oh, that's fucking cool. Yeah. Yeah. yeah Cause they're emotionally cooking at that point. You know, it's, it's cool. It's much. It, cool. it had some, it had some real effects on, on our approach when we saw that um, we decided anamorphic was too immersive. Cause it was like, you were in a movie with him and that wasn't yeah. the right vibe. And then we, we, so we went spherical. Then with the lighting, we had two options. One was kind of like a like a more f- frontal but underexposed window light, and kind of like an action movie spatial lighting feel, like mm-hmm. a, like the area feel. Mm-hmm. And it was just a little too um, indistinct. And then the other one was like a top light, but it was really warm next to these windows. And with the LEDs, his skin went getting ruddy because it was so you know, LEDs are fake color. So it's, yeah, they're always pretending. So what we ended up doing was from the backlight starting blue, like 6,500 wrapping it to 4,600, 3,200, and then an eye light at like 2,900. So over the course of all these lights, it pulled out a more natural skin tone in the kind of key area of his face. Fascinating. You'll see it wrap warm into his shadow side. And then we had some neg fill, a light connecting the outside to the, the background, just so the, because this is over a year and a half with sunny, shade, uh, cloudy, yeah, um, winter, summer. We had to kind of be able to do this anytime. That's awesome, um, man. And so you were doing the so this is we're talking about the interview setup stuff is what we're talking about. Yeah. yeah. So that was the first thing we really figured out, yeah. and then knowing that like a month and a half later, two months, we were going to Austria. Then we started to build based on the stories he was telling and what was working, um, knowing the vignettes we were going to do, we, we started to figure out what would be the inspiration look wise. And I would pull references and Leslie would pull references. And we kind of followed this track of, um, what fit for the time period. And so what, what we went, we built a number of LUTs of different contrast ratios because I found that helpful. Mm-hmm. We talk about the LUT world of trunk history, which influenced this in a minute. But the, um, we would do, we did a red balloon LUT that was uh, based on that short from France in the 50s that has these oh, beautiful, yeah. punchy colors and yeah, interesting yeah. contrast, uh, kind of an open shadow feel, a lot of it, and a warm, welcoming sunlight. So we built three contrast ratios with that lot. And then um, we did a sound of music lot, um, (laughs) which is like these bold colors. But if you look at that old ectochrome or uh, is that ectochrome or 
I'm not, I'm negative. not sure. So 70 mil negative. So whatever that old stock was, but those old stocks, especially once it's through the printer are like, there's not much range. <laughs> and then the color's all in the middle. Yeah. <laughs> so like as soon as it starts to burn out, there's no color in the shadows. There's no color, but that middle pops. And, <laughs> and that's one of the reasons that movie is such an astonishing feat of cinematography is to pull that life out of that. So, but that's not that hard to build into a LUT. So we did that with different ratios. And then there was one more LUT we used for these forest scenes that was based on a, a more recent film called The Beguiled that Sofia Coppola did. Mm. And at the start of that movie, there's a there's like a three-minute sequence of introducing the film in it. It like has a crane shot into this lane lined with big trees and the, the late afternoon sunlight sneaking in. <laughs> but Philippe Lesore didn't light for the shade where you could see almost everything. He lit for the sunlight. Yeah. And so it's this, it's almost like an interior, but it it's outside. Um, Super and the cool. warmth of the light is, is really beautiful. So we knew we were doing these kind of moody forest scenes, as you saw that where he's talking about how his brother was scared of the, the dark forest. Yep. And so we built a lot based on that, that, would keep it too high contrast would have kind of countered that sunlight and, and just really made it feel burned. So we, we created something a little lower con to, to capture that. Super cool, man. And I, I all nerd out all day before the shoot. And then on the shoot day, I don't want to talk about any of this. Yeah. Right. It makes sense. Right. Cause it, it, then it, you're just, you're hunting, right. You're emotionally hunting on the day. I, I want this to be like instinct on set so that like, cause it's so much harder to figure out where the camera goes and where the lights go and yeah. how you're responding to the blocking. Like there's the last thing I want to think about is I wonder what I could do to this LUT to make it blah, blah, blah. <laughs> exactly. That's the, the, the mindset that you can't be in at that moment because you're supposed mm -hmm. to be present. I mean, Arnold's <laughs> Arnold's there, right? So you're supposed to be present yeah. with this guy. Oh, what, he, he'll let you do what you need to do, but I wouldn't call him patient. You know, he's, he's always moving forward. He's, I, I will say this, man, when I was watching that stuff, I thought not only did he look great in all his interviews, but my favorite interviews that you did, I love the way uh, Danny DeVito looked. I thought that one was really great. And uh, I was a big fan of James Cameron's actually. I thought he looked awesome. In cool. his, yeah, man. I I'm glad I, I, when James came in, he was, um, you know, he was in, the, it was last summer. It was like, he was doing reshoots for avatar pickups, whatever he was there. He was running late cause he's doing reshoots. We have a limited amount of time. Mm -hmm. Um, one of the, gr the grip rag, the, the 12 by that was on the back wall pulled loose. <laughs> <laughs> and so it was like, and so I had to let it go and now we have to like garbage map that to, so it's not moving Think, things like that were happening. And I'm like, and then he sits in and he has a very different skin than yes. I thought. Yeah. Cause, <laughs> and so it's, I'm, I'm really glad it worked out cause that was one of those ones where I feel like this is going to work out, but this needs like a crunch on contrast and it needs, I, I need to put all the pieces together to make this great later. Yeah. Um, because there's no time to make it great now, which goes back to that talent thing of like, 
I can't make this about me right now. I need to make sure it's within range of where we need to be. Mm-hmm. But beyond that, um, his time is more important than my perfection at this moment. Yeah, man. And for those of you listening that don't work in our business, and you're just movie fans. It's when you're lighting an individual, uh, there's so many variables. And even though you're using the same light that you used on someone else and the same kind of setup you used on someone else, that's great. Uh, like, beautiful, tasteful lighting is all within millimeters of movement of height and angle. And then also each individual's skin has different pigmentation in it and different, it reflects light or absorbs light. Um, and so doing that kind of craftsmanship on a dock is incredibly difficult because of the timing and because of trying to get your subjects. And oftentimes you're pulling whoever you're interviewing, like you said, with Cameron, and I spent 15, 20 years shooting documentaries back for Harvard. And we had the same situation where you'd yank a stem cell research uh, scientist out of his laboratory. And he'd be like, I got 15 minutes, you know, and you sit down and you try to craft this thing. in that amount of time, it's, it's high, high, high stress when you're doing documentaries for that kind of level of uh, master like artwork. You know what I mean? It's, it's a, there's a very kind of limited amount of control that you have in doc. And so again, but going back to what I was saying earlier about like deciding where you would like to be, if you had everything, everything Mm -hmm. and working back from there is, um, really helped on this project of, I didn't say, Oh, we're doing a dock. We'll get a dock light. We'll light it like a dock. We'll, we'll, we'll approach this. He's going to walk into this key light and it'll be fine. Um, it was, how would I like this as a movie? This needs to feel like a film. Mm-hmm. Um, this is how I would light a face in a narrative. Uh, what light will let me do that consistently in multiple cities, states, countries, whatever. Um, and how can I make it all feel like one film? Just the hardest thing in doc. What, uh, and what light were you using for your key for those? In- so what I used for the key was a, a spectrum four from Lightgear. Yep. Um, I like the color more than most of the other LEDs by a fair amount. And then it's also lighter. Mm-hmm. So I don't need a special arm to, to boom it out. I can just use a C stand. Mm hmm. Um, or a double arm or whatever. Um, you can get them anywhere. And it's, I think it's the best option for having the most freedom. Mm-hmm. It's got enough output. And so what I would do is I put on the grid cloth that comes with it. And then I would, I would billow uh, about a foot below it. a So it would look almost like the bottom of a tube, uh, another full grid cloth. And then under that six inches, I would billow a half soft frost to give it a little sparkle. Cool. And then, so I wasn't actually lighting them with the light. I was lighting the diffusion and the diffusion lit the people. Yes. Yes. That's why it looks so gorgeous. I mean, I think when you're younger and I think the misconception is, is like, oh, I'll just buy that light with the diffusion and I'll set that thing up. And 
This is something I learned years ago while doing photography, especially working with those old pro photo units. And you'd have like these huge soft boxes and the material and the diffusion on them was never really that great. And I found myself just turning, 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 turning those things almost completely off the subject to getting whatever sort of residual mm -hmm. bounce was coming out of the corner of it. In, yeah. in real world, like right now I'm being lit, not directly by the sun, but by the sun bouncing off this beige house across the street and then it's coming through three layers of trees and then bouncing off the floor which is hardwood onto my face like that's where my front light's coming from right now so and I, I i actually use a lot of stuff like that where um if i have the room to or power in terms of horsepower on my lights to skip lights into the background from outside um have some random kicks on around bounce it bounce a jolico off the ground so that it it connects with the space mm -hmm. and it doesn't just feel like there's this person this floating person in front of a background it's we're in a room the light is reaching from there to here um where i could i would use bounce um if i wasn't get, like on the arnold interview we had that wide low side shot so i couldn't fill them in with bounce so i had to do it active Mm -hmm. But some of the other ones, I would just bring bounce right to the muslin or silver, right to the edge of the frame. And, um, and that always feels more natural to me. So uh, I would do that where I could. And then other times I would have like an eye light that was off mm -hmm. or another light that was off, ready to go so that if they step in while Leslie and them were talking, oh, okay, this is what we're going to do. Mm -hmm. I can just adjust the levels. I have all the dimmers, um, the ballast right next to me labeled. So I can just put the eye light up two points, top light down three points, back light up two points um, without anyone knowing anything's happening. Smart. Yeah, super smart. Because then you're a magician <laughs> at that point. You know, yeah. they sit down just, and they go, it looks I, great, you know. Yeah, I just don't want them to even know that I'm futzing because as soon as they start to notice, then it takes them another seven minutes to get into the conversation. So yeah, they should be talking with Leslie and not talking to us. It's a great, great documentary series. It's a lot of fun. It's like, I have to say that with age, Arnold's face is getting even more interesting. Did you find that when you were shooting him? Yeah. I mean, he's, he's cool. He's, he's, uh, He's expressive. Um, he's, he's got that life to him. Um, I don't know. It, it's, he knows how to work with the camera to, to keep it from, keep it interesting, but he's, I don't know. I, I, that's, I just, I think he looks cool. I don't know if he looks more cool or, or, or oh, what, but dude, I it, think so. Definitely, he, uh, he's got those, he's got all those wrinkles now. He's got like that, mm -hmm. that scruff and the, his hands, like just the, 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 beat. I love that he's not hiding from it, you know, yeah, he's like yeah. he's owning, looking cool when he's old instead of trying to pretend he's, he's not Mickey you know, Rourke. Six years yeah. Younger. yeah. He's not Mickey Rourke. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, it's, it's a, that's a real tragedy. I think in the business, a lot of, um, cause there's a really tough transition period for a lot of people, but if once they're old, they look awesome. Badass. You know? And especially, I mean, we're lucky cause we're, we're, I mean, I, I believe that women also look amazing when they al allow totally. 
their roadmap. Because like whenever I've worked with actresses or I've worked with bottles and they're like, I've got wrinkles in my face. I'm like, that's a roadmap. Those are smile lines. That When I see that, mm-hmm. that means you're a happy person. <laughs> that means that you're a person that has experienced things emotionally. Yeah. Um, that should I, be celebrated. I, I really appreciate when people just kind of um, – you know, and I, I understand there's a lot of really difficult pressures in all directions, so I don't yeah, uh, yeah judging, course. but it's, uh, you know, for me, like there, I have to be very, you know, it's the classic DP thing of like, if you can light women, you'll live your work forever. Mm-hmm. But, mm-hmm. um, and that's a real thing, but there's like a point where you pass into acceptance of where you are and, and you still have to be flattering, but like, it's so cool to see, mm-hmm. um, see the age come to life. Like, you know, I want to see Anthony Hopkins look like Anthony Hopkins. I want to see, mm-hmm. you know, Judy Dench look like Judy Dench. It's, it's great. Yeah, man. I want to see Arnold sort of sneaking into a key light mm-hmm. with a, you know, his, yeah. like his, gnarly barbell worn hand gripping this like chewed on cigar nub you know that's what you want and you were delivering a lot of that in this piece so it's very tasty we talk about food it's very tasty to watch him in and out of these shots man you did a killer job on that piece thank you yeah thank you it was and I, i again that that test taught us a whole lot and that's testing is the unspoken hero and you want to know about what most of the top people are doing is they're taking the time to, to figure out something special ahead of time. They're not guessing on the day. I fully agree, man. The past couple pieces that I've shot, I I've spent two to two or three days just testing and you pull lights out. You, you're, you're just fucking around as much as you can. Mm-hmm. Cause I hate being on set going, man, if I had more fucking time, this would, and it's usually my fault. You know, it's like, I should have spent more time, testing this stuff before I got here. Cause you, you at know, the same time, what are the priorities? And you know, you, you have, especially as a director, you're pulled in so many different directions. You yeah. really have to be like, this is what I want to test. And this is what I want to test because that's yeah. all I have time for. It's true, man. It's very true. Um, you gotta, yeah. Picking your battles yeah, is, is a definite. And so one thing that I've learned through my few times directing or, um, to kind of identify when a director is kind of under duress of too many things happening at once and to simplify the questions that I'm bringing, um, instead of what do you think about this? Uh, get, let me give you an A and a B and I'll just saw it. Nice. And, nice. And that's a, that was definitely something I've found, uh, as a very useful skill to have developed of, like, oh man, they're, they're flooded with a million <laughs> things and, and not even to get into the poli- political side of what yeah, yeah, you know, happens yeah. above the line. Yeah. Occasionally yeah. I'm in a car while like someone above the line is having a conference call or, or phone call on speakerphone and yeah. I'll just be quiet and listen. And it's like, man, I'm so glad I don't do that. Yeah. It's insanity, dude. It's scary, sharky world. Dude, the safest that I feel as a director, the safest that I feel is when I call action. Because when I call action, everybody's going to mm-hmm. shut up. <laughs> and so I don't, yeah. I don't have to deal with all that other stuff, man. And that, that, that. Do you ever shoot on film as a director? Have, um, you, ever, have you not played since, with that not as since, an experience? Not since film school. 
When I was in film school, we oh, did yeah. everything on film and then cut on film. But uh, since then, no. Why? Why do you ask? Do you I, ask? I don't. Sh- I don't shoot a lot of film, but occasionally I do, uh, and it's really enjoyable because everyone's paying attention. No one's on their phone. Yeah, everyone's a little bit afraid in a good way because yeah. you don't know until it's too late. So you have to do your job and 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 be focused. Um, a friend of mine let me come visit um, a set of once a time. Once upon a time in Hollywood. Super cool. And it was like going to church. It was like everyone there is the best at what they do. <laughs> um, they're focused on the job. Mm-hmm. No one's on their phone. It's a firing offense to be on your phone. <laughs> I and I saw a bunch of friends and they were just talking about the crazy stuff they've been doing. And, and it just, it felt like it's supposed to feel. Yeah. And it's not because they're shooting film, but shooting film is a part of um, finding that focus. Yeah. And, uh, and, you know, having that in my mind, back in my mind at all times, like, this is what it can be. What can I do to get the culture on set to that? Yeah. Is a a really helpful thing. Yeah. It comes from the top, right? So it comes down from... Yeah from you it comes down from the director it comes down from the producers it comes down from the top and if you i i mean i've always tried to push that with my shoots it's often difficult because you're working with a lot of young folks on the crew and you know god forbid mm-hmm. they take three seconds to think about their life <laughs> and they don't just sort of disappear into the dopamine delivery system that is in their mm-hmm. pocket but uh I, dude i would well, love that i, would I love did that. hear you mention the uh on 12 km the you you've had a, a dp you work with a lot and um, yes. do you have a full like an ad and production designer and, and others like is your whole core team i used to um, I, what, when, when i did yeah. when, when i did that it was east coast and a lot of those guys are still east coast and i love them and i would work with them in a mm-hmm. heartbeat uh, but uh, my cinematographer him and i still work together and i'm building a new team because we moved out here to los angeles uh, four months, five months before COVID. So mm-hmm. I've been slowly building a new team here. I just did a new project last month and I love the guys that I work with on that. So we're getting cool. there. We're getting there, dude. We're getting there. That, that's such a, for a director, you know, taking it off your plate. Like me with it, like the gaffer I've done all these TV shows with Ryan French uh, and Rudy Kobarubius, my kind of regular key grip. Like, so much is handled mm-hmm. ahead of time and, and as we go that I can I can really focus on what we're doing and where how to push it further and um, you just that trust and support down the ladder and and mm. in the community of the film family is just um, it's such a when it works it's it's one of the more beautiful things in terms of a yeah man creating something. Yeah, man. When I was at my peak back on the East, um, we were on uh, Who's There, which was that other shoot. And I just remember me and the, me and the cinematographer, he was here last week and we were hanging out for cine, for cine gear out here. And um, mm-hmm. we were talking about it and he was saying that like, I've never been on a shoot where, you know, the grips would get up from lunch 15 minutes early and start to work without being asked. <laughs> <laughs> and he's like, we had so it's much a, fun. New York's a different culture and it's not a thumbs up or thumbs down on it, but it's yes. the East coast is a whole different yes. vibe. Yes. Um, 
<laughs> and so you you just work within it and it's great but yes uh, i just don't understand how working out of hampers for your whole career i, I think makes me nervous <laughs> yeah you know they're they're i'll say it because i'm an east coaster they're crotchety motherfuckers they could be very crotchety and if you're not their bud they could ruin your day so like you have totally to, yeah you got to be in you got to be in with the guys and you know i i learned early on who i have beers with at night so you know it's 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 a part of that business man it's it's you know it yeah it like nowhere who holds the cards in the situation that's that political thing i i did a series of major league baseball spots in february mm -hmm. and there were all these warnings of what we could do supposedly we couldn't even put down a tripod at like so <laughs> i had brought my like ronin up uh and like it was we had all the lighting hand holdable figured out <laughs> it was all these bounces and things um the first person i get to know is greenskeepers yeah <laughs> show them i'm gonna listen to them i'm not messing with them i'm not gonna do anything without talking to them and once that relationship is there all of a sudden all these this freedom opens up but yeah. like you gotta being higher on the call sheet doesn't mean you hold all the cards so it's it's um, it's really important to understand the dynamics and, and that's where being a crew member for a long time is super helpful. Yes. Yes. You yeah. know, and to, to, to know how to show respect to transportation because I can't do my job if they don't do their job. And if I'm not helping them, everything's a mess. Um, yeah. Art department, uh, production design, set deck, uh, greens department, catering. Like, it's no, anyone that was not necessary would have been drummed out a hundred years ago. Like, we need everyone and they all deserve exactly. our attention and respect. Exactly. Exactly, man. And, and, and most of the time, it's just acknowledging that they're there. Like, at any time. Mm -hmm that I was on a crew anytime that my buddies that work on crew still today, they'll come and talk to me. We'll, we'll catch up after a long day. They'll do fucking 12, 13 hours and we'll catch up on the bar and they'll be like, this asshole got in and out of the fucking van all day. And he didn't even look at me. And you're just like, ugh. and he's like, why, why am I doing this? And it, just acknowledging other people and their presence and, and really appreciating and enjoying the fact that you're, a, you have the job, right? Because that's within itself, mm -hmm. that's a small miracle that you even got the, the position. And then B, having the wherewithal to, and to be able to look around and appreciate the people that you're working with. I think if you can do that, you'll have, an, you'll have a crew that will not only respect you, but you'll have a crew that will go to the end of the earth to get your, your ideas out and to get your stuff made. You, you really have to... I, I have nothing but, you know, disdain for, you know, privileged, uh, you know, keys that walk on set and their nose is up. And it's like, I would never do that. It's like, fuck you, man. You know what I mean? Executive style. Yeah, dude. <laughs> yeah. It's like, fuck. Oh, yeah. You think they're taking too long? Why don't you go put your hands around that fucking four out and gra drag that through the mud today? See how that feels. At the same time. And this is where the hard part is. Sometimes the four outs taking too long. <laughs> it's true. And, and in the end, it's your name and my name 
on the slate and it's got to get done and it's got to get done right. So, um, someone really astutely, um, described a location or a, a travel job recently as, uh, we were trying to figure out crew, limited options, difficult situation. And he's like, listen, this is like an away game. Like travel's always an away game. Um, <laughs> sometimes it works out, but you're always starting from a different place. And so I don't have to call lights with my, my regular key grip and gaffer, but I can, you know, I can tell you where every tweeny goes if, if it comes to it, but mm-hmm. I would much rather be focused on, on bigger problems decisions. Yeah. But, um, so yeah. And then finding out how to drop in somewhere, show them respect, but also like you're, there's still a job to do and, and not everyone is really very good at it. So, um, that's true. Some too. are inexperienced. Some have a bad attitude. Some are just, you know, I, I've been on jobs where someone that was, one of the best firsts in town um, is operating and just doesn't have that thing. And it's not their fault Mm -hmm. Um, or they're not getting what the director is saying. And, and that's a really tough thing because that could have happened to me. You know, I, it's, I'm feel super lucky to have a mixture of experience and skills that happens to work and, and happens to, to be able to do this job for a living. Um, But I, I don't, think I deserve it. I just think that I, I try hard and I really like it. Yeah. 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 Well, we should start wrapping this up, man. This has been really great, this conversation. And I, I, I like how, you know, deep we've gone into how it actually works, which I think is fun. And let me ask, uh, let me uh, ask sort of uh, a fanboy question. What was mm-hmm. the coolest thing you did with Arnold? Like, what was the coolest day for you? Um, I rode a tank (laughs) and that was pretty fantastic. Um, yeah, there's a couple main Arnold stories and the, the, the tank is definitely the one where it was like, uh, so I used to shoot ski films, Warren Miller ski films. Mm -hmm. There were two main guys that shot it and when they were both busy and they'd bring me in. Um, so I did that for a while. So when you see the ski shots, that was me and him like kind of a throwback to the old days. Mm -hmm. And, uh, but the tank, I, I still have my helicopter harness with daisy chains and everything. And that tank's turret doesn't move anymore. So I'm like, oh, I can hard mount. I can kind of get all these rig style shots in the 30 seconds that he's going to give me. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and he drives like a maniac. So, uh, <laughs> you know, he, he's in control, seems to be. But like, you know, almost scraped me off on some tree, tree branches a couple times, like at 30 miles an hour. So it's... I needed to be set and that like the kind of adrenaline of that and then jumping off and John, uh, John Parson was uh, the assistant on the day and it was just the two of us switching to tripod and a, uh, and a 65 to 300 signature zoom uh-huh. in 30 seconds, getting <laughs> the shots of the wheels and long lens car shot style shots, pulling them off, doing another rig shot, you know, in a minute and kind of, it, it was just like, he wasn't waiting. Let's get it as much as we possibly can. And then we're get the last shot is this over the shoulder. And I had this signature 16 to 32, um, kind of get that wide. I love the old 
rig mounts before mm-hmm. all the arm cars took over everything. Yes, me too. Me no, too. Now the badges are all like floating, and but originally that look, find that great shot, let the world go past. Yeah. So you're trying to like do the handheld version of that, and I'm clipping in. I got two of my three daisy chains in, so I'm safe and everything. But and he starts to back up the tank. I'm like, sir, uh, ten more seconds. He goes, <laughs> I will back up slowly. <laughs> I'm like, he just can't stop. <laughs> 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 That's hysterical. And then, all right. So, the the last fanboy question I have: uh, mm-hmm. How was Danny DeVito in real life? He just seems like the coolest fucking dude. He was great. He had comes. I think he had come to see Arnold, and uh, we got like ten minutes with him. And he's just like he was really kind to everyone. A lot of energy. Just answered everything in a really great way. So it seems like he was there for a long time, but. I think that was only a 10 minute interview. He, so he was cool. fantastic. So cool, man. And, and to see like, you know, we were just at his house and David Cameron showed up, you know, the former prime minister to, <laughs> you know, Ben Arnie's ear. And so we had five minutes with him just cause he was there. You so know? crazy, man. So uh, crazy. It's like this, there's so many layers to him that are just not, um, well, if, if any- he's not given credit for, so hopefully this will, yeah, man. People it, get a sense of that. If anything, that's what I took away from this, right? Because, you know, you grow up and, you know, what was his, I forget what he called it, but he, it, it translated to bullshit. Like, so. Shmay. Shmay. His shmay that he kept mm-hmm. saying, you know, I, I have the cigar. It's my shmay. You know, you grow up in the in the the headlights of that Schmay, so you just assume he's like this big dude. He likes to weightlift, but he's a real smart guy, man. And 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 uh, the the thing that I took away from this doc was that not only was he smart and driven, Jesus, man, how old was he when he started to get that big? And and then like sixteen, sixteen, like, crazy, dude. And, and then you feel like when you watch the whole piece. You feel like he always wanted to be a politician. You know what I mean? You feel like that was there from the beginning. But he's a very yeah. smart, driven dude, you know? Cool guy, man. It's, you know, how many, it's all those, like how many careers and how many lifetimes would it take? There's that great Bill Burr bit about how he, like, how many lifetimes would it take me to do what Arnold did? Like, I'm on my third try at Rosetta Stone Spanish. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, he's, he's, he's phenomenal and you know i i really appreciated he was he's not he's not gonna sit around for you but he was nothing but kind to the crew um and fun when he wanted to be he 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 won over the crew in eight seconds on that lighting test really Uh, we had pulled this 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 was amazing he we pulled this chesterfield couch off the back back wall in that that big office room he has at his house where the main interview is there used to be a there's usually a pool table there. So we got rid of that to create that space. Mm-hmm. And he walks in in his suit um, or whatever he, his first wardrobe choice was. And and he just looks at it. He goes, the couch is no good for me. Couches make me slouch and slouching is a loser position. I need a chair. So I'm leaning forward. I am always moving forward. And within eight seconds, the whole crew was like, slow clap, you know, <laughs> like, he, like, how do you not love that? It's, it was hilarious because he's right. But also just to have Arnold be that Arnold from moment one, it was just fun. Yeah, man. Um, and there was a lot of that. Well, dude, you're very talented. 
you're very lucky to be able to be in these positions. And um, I hope you're enjoying every minute of it because it sounds like you've seen some really amazing things so far. I I am nothing but thankful because this has been a, a an absolutely great ride. And, um, you know, I've done a lot of years with Leslie, so to do it with her was was extra special. So, well, dude. Yeah. Thanks for, I'm glad you enjoyed it. And, uh, yeah, thanks for having me. Okay. There it is. Um, what a great fucking conversation, right? Right. Are you, uh, going to look at how uh, documentaries are lit in a different way? Like just watch that standard sort of faux doc reality TV show that you watch and look at the lighting. Look at the difference in the lighting from Arnold's documentary and let's say the Kardashians or Queer Eye or whatever other thing that you're watching. Just look at the quality levels and differences. And I think the big takeaway in this episode is preparation, prep, 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 and tests. And you can tell just by looking at those tasty, tasty, tasty details that Logan has in his work that he appreciates and works hard with prep. And I bet you that comes from his years of being on the team and on the crew, especially if you're in the camera team, because there's a lot of checkout. There's a lot of prep that goes into that. Um, You cannot be expected to figure out all new gear and all new techniques while trying to do a shoot at the same time. You can't put that expectation on yourself. So preparation, prep days, lighting tests, shoots, those are very important. And I know that you're sitting here going, well, I don't have a job right now. So maybe on my next job, I'll I'll ask the producer for a couple days of light prep. Do you have a camera at home? Do you have lights at home? Do tests when you're not doing anything else. You know what I mean? Test the angle of that light. Have someone sit in for you. Give them lunch. Buy them lunch. Set up some shit. Maybe bring together your core team of guys. You guys are all in guys and girls. You're all sitting around unemployed right now because of the strike. So how about you all get together? You order some lunch and you go, guys, we're just going to do some tests. I want to run through on some theories. You want to hang out? And if you're somebody who works on these light crews, if you're someone that's a grip or a gaffer and you're just sort of sitting around waiting for your next job and you're like, I don't move a light until I get paid. Well, you might want to spend this time and form a bond with a young cinematographer who will, next thing you know, be shooting one of these big shows. You know what I mean? So instead of being like, well, I don't pull the gear out of my truck unless I have cash coming in, you might want to make an investment and go hang out and play with these people and shoot some tests. You know what I mean? I would suggest that. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Hope you enjoyed this episode. I have a lot more great episodes on the way. Be sure to be following us on Instagram, as I say all the time. Be sure to click the sponsors' links. Keep this show going. And do me a favor. Did you like today's cinematography episode? Because there's so many other cinematographers out there. If you're a member of Cinematography Salon, do a post about today's show. Put it up there. Tell the other members to listen to the show. Get a few other members 
on board with the show. Get some more cinematographers over here. You know what I mean? Because I will find the cinematographers you want to talk to. And I'm not shitting on anybody else's shows. There's a lot of other great shows out there, but they get too nerdy and too technical. I guarantee you, if I get a cinematographer on this show, you will know how to go to set. You will know how to exchange with directors. You will know how to hang out with folks. You will be a better cinematographer. Okay? So let me know who you want me to get on. Bring over some more cinematographers and let's show the fucking sponsors of this show that uh, you guys are here. Okay? That's it. I'll see you guys next Tuesday.